The reading today will be from Luke 19, uh, verses 28 through 48. So if you could please stand when you get there for the reading of God's Word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice uh, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees were in the crowd, in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that, had been, uh, that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are back today in the gospel according to Luke. And we have resumed kind of in a climactic moment in the gospel of Luke. And there's a lot of things that are already happening on the ground. So if you'll permit me maybe two or three minutes, I'd like to summarize as best I can the previous 18 chapters that have led us to this moment. Um, Remember, Luke starts out his gospel by saying he's writing an account that is based on eyewitness testimony. And if you just go to the introduction of Luke's gospel, I won't read all of it for you, but uh, he says in verse two, uh, I have interviewed eyewitnesses and those who ministered these things first to us. He, he's saying he's writing this gospel account on the basis of those who were firsthand witnesses to the things which are being described in the gospel. And then in Luke's gospel, he does a lot of interesting things. He introduces Jesus to us as an expectant king figure, uh, one who is going to change the landscape of Israel. And most notably, 
that's through a series of prophecies and angelic pronouncements and ultimately even through worship of shepherds on the newborn child. Um, and then Jesus starts off his public ministry by proclaiming that he is the one who the Lord has anointed by his spirit to release the captives, to give sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that's, that's quite a way to, to start out a public ministry. And then, you know, the rest of the Gospel of Luke is Jesus backing up that claim by not only teaching powerfully about the liberation which he brings by the grace of God, but he also claims to forgive sins. He also does all kinds of miraculous works in the Gospel. He calls disciples and apostles to himself, and he tells them to go out into various towns and regions and proclaim the same message that he's preaching. And what we begin to get is it's not just that Luke thinks that Jesus was this Messiah figure, or that some eyewitnesses thought that Jesus was a Messiah figure, but that Jesus himself considers himself to be the Messiah. Jesus himself thinks about himself as a divine messenger from God who is coming to fulfill these things, such that when John the Baptist asked Jesus, are, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another in, uh, in the middle of Luke's gospel? Well, Jesus says, he doesn't quite answer the question directly, but he, said, but he, he does all kinds of miracles, giving sight to the blind, uh, setting people free of demonic possession. And then he tells John's messengers, hey, go back and tell John everything that you've seen. Because he's, he's saying, I'm providing the evidence for the expectation that I'm saying I'm fulfilling. And Luke is carefully recording all of these things for us. And then about halfway through the gospel in, in chapter 9, about a third of the way through the gospel, he, he tells us that Jesus has intentionally directed himself now towards the city of Jerusalem. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 51, is where Jesus makes that definitive decision in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, verse 51 of chapter 9, When the days drew near of him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus sets it in his mind and in his heart, and as a, as a matter of fact, that he is going to Jerusalem. And that's the journey we've been on for the last several months and uh, just about a year, actually, going through these texts and seeing what Jesus is teaching about himself on the way to Jerusalem. And on the way, he's telling his disciples about how he's going to be beaten and given over to the scribes and the chief priests, how he's going to be uh, slaughtered by them. Um, and then he's also telling things about his kingdom, how his kingdom is going to set people free, how he's welcoming people in as a king, how he's still doing miracles and signs and, and all the rest. And he's sending, well, we would say, it looks like he's sending a mixed message. Except that right before our text uh, tonight in chapter uh, 19, verse 28, Jesus has clarified about the timing of these things in the previous parable, uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Jesus clarifies that his kingdom is coming. It's, it's going to be inaugurated but that his kingdom also is not going to come into its fullness right away. In fact, the introduction to that text, uh, Jesus tells them this parable because they thought that the kingdom was to appear immediately. In verse 11 of chapter 19, it says, He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that, a kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus is aware of the signals that they expect of him, that they are expecting him to come and sit on the throne. And, and then in this text, 
he goes on to, after caveating that the kingdom isn't coming initially, he goes on to spur into frenzy the people of Jerusalem by fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 by sending his disciples specifically to go get a colt so that he can ride a colt into the city, which is, again, him being self-aware, proclaiming that he is the messianic figure of hope. Now, we'll look at that text more closely in a, in a few moments. But what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest, uh, in, at, least, at least at this point, is that what Luke is doing in his gospel, like every good book, is he's writing and building his case. But towards the end of the book, the, the climax and all of the, all of the things will snap together towards the end. Uh, if you read a good mystery novel, uh, they delay, delay, delay the climaxing of all the events, all of the pieces snapping into place and all of the events going into line together, everything starting to make sense. That all happens in the last three or four chapters of most books. You, you, don't, you don't give it away in chapter two because well, that's just not good writing. And, and that's true with, with everything in life. I mean, when, when we watch, for example, a sports game like basketball, uh, the first three quarters, even into the first half of the fourth quarter, flies by. No one's taking timeouts. There's not really a lot of stuff going on. And then in the last like five minutes of the game, those last five minutes take like an hour and a half to complete because people are calling timeouts. There's all kinds of stuff going on. People are cutting to commercial breaks. And that's just how it goes because that's when everything is, is coming to a head. That's when things that are meaningful are starting to happen. And they're bringing together all of the hard work and effort that they've brought throughout the game, but they're, they're bringing it together at this moment to seal the victory. And that's what Luke's doing here now in the end of chapter 19. But really, he's going to, for the next three or four chapters, be strongly arguing his case and bringing together lots of different pieces of the puzzle to, to seal the deal that Jesus was a self-aware messianic king and this wasn't just the deception of his disciples sometime later on, that Jesus was intentionally sending these signals about himself. And so uh, this section, this, this huge section of verses uh, that closes chapter 19, is rich with Old Testament references, with Old Testament expectations. And I hope that uh, when we conclude our time together tonight, you will at least understand what Jesus is getting after when he is, when he is completing all these things and, and doing what he is he's doing. So uh, the central idea that he is provoking from the people is, an, is, a, is a response of either worshipful acceptance of him or skeptical rejection of him. And this is something that we've seen Luke building a case for throughout, but he's, he's hyper-focusing that picture uh, here later in the gospel. And we know that he's had conflicts with the Pharisees before. We know that he's had conflicts with the scribes and the chief priests before. We know that he's been accepted by people before, and people see him as kind of a hero and a champion and one who is speaking with power and, and performing miraculous signs. But here Luke snaps together in sharp contrast several different times the varied response to Jesus coming as he comes to the people. For instance, if you, if you just consider verse 38 contrasted with verse 39 of the text tonight, you'll see that Jesus thinks of himself as worthy of this kind of honor and praise. That the people respond to him by blessing his name, and the Pharisees tell Jesus, that's not fitting of you in this moment. Don't accept this this praise. Similarly, 
in verse uh, 47 and verse 48, uh, the chief priests and scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all of the people were hanging on his words. You see the varying responses to Jesus that Luke is drawing out for us in the text. So uh, let's take a closer look uh, to these responses, this narrative flow, and we'll see why is it that there's such anticipation and rejection of everything that Jesus is, is getting after tonight. So the text starts off with Jesus approaching Jerusalem finally. He's been approaching Jerusalem since chapter 9, verse 51. But here Luke is telling us, he, you know, here the events are coming to a head. And verse 29 tells us that when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, those are cities that are just, just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, particularly from the direction of the Mount of Olivet, he sends his disciples out to go into the village in front of you, likely Beth, Bethpage or Bethany. And where entering upon it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, that the Lord has need of it. And then they go and they do as Jesus asked. They go into the city. And just as he said, there's a colt that is tied up. They untie it. Someone tries to stop them and says, what are you doing? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And the person lets them go. Now, there's all kinds of speculation about whether Jesus you know, visited Jerusalem beforehand and then kind of set this charade up. He made a deal with someone outside the city that at some point in the future, he's going to come. He, there, there's got to be a cult ready for him at the Passover. He'll send disciples. There will be this code word uh, where they say the Lord has need of it. And then this person will be in on it and they'll let the cult go. And, and it, then Jesus is, you know, setting up this fabrication, this falsehood that he is this messianic figure, but it's not really true. Or you could say that Jesus is, with, with strange amounts of insight, we would say maybe divine or supernatural revelation, able to perceive that there will be a cult, that the cult is located here, and see a little bit into the future to know how these events would unfold. Now, what's funny is if you take either of those approaches, you actually end up in the same spot, which is that Jesus is setting up a narrative in which he is going to be riding into Jerusalem, on a cult. So if you, if you take this, the more skeptical approach and you say Jesus set this up like a year or two in advance and he made a deal with this guy, well, you're still left with the trouble that Jesus is claiming to be the messianic king figure that Zechariah anticipates in Zechariah chapter 9. In fact, in the call to worship uh, that we started this service with, we read from that text. And if you would uh, be pleased to turn there with me, uh, Zechariah chapter 9 is not just some random quotation about a donkey. It's a specific quotation about a king who's coming to set all things right. So like many of the prophets, there's this lament over the current situation of the people and there's this looking forward to the restoration of the people. And Zechariah is no different. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is this note of restoration and hope. So he said a lot of woeful things about the people of God, and now he turns to hope and says, Rejoice, O greatly, greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here's Jesus, whether by intentional 
preparation or by divine supernatural revelation, setting himself up as the king figure from Zechariah 9. And then in verse 10, you'll notice the, the goal of this is not just so that someone rides into a city on a donkey, but the goal of this is that this announces and proclaims this restoration of the people of God. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. And, the, and he, this king figure, shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, what's amazing about that is, is Jesus is setting himself up then not just as a king figure, but if you keep reading in Zechariah 9, he sets himself up as a, the, the messianic figure who's going to establish God's peace on the earth. And the anticipation then from the people in Jerusalem seeing this take place is right. They're saying, well, here's the king coming, riding on a, coal, uh, on a colt, and, and what are we to expect? That he's going to bring the peace that Zechariah 9 predicts he will bring. So their response of worship to him, to, to honor him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a fitting response. And the Pharisees' rejection of that response is, is because the Pharisees reject that Jesus is the, the messianic figure in Zechariah 9. But the, the point you can't get around is that Jesus is claiming to be the messianic figure from chapter 9, both by his actions to send his disciples intentionally into this village, and also by the fact that when the Pharisees challenge him, you'll notice at the end of that little section, he, he tells the Pharisees, even if the people didn't worship me, the stones themselves would cry out and worship me. So he's basically saying, this is an inevitable response, worshiping me for the actions that I'm doing. The, the thing that you can't get away from, though, is that Jesus is claiming to bring this kind of victory and peace. Now, what's interesting is that Zechariah, the prophecy of Zechariah, is, is filled with not only hope and restoration language for the people of God, but it's also filled with judgment language for the people of God, those who have rejected God and rejected his covenant. And Jesus keeps in that trend when he then, in verse 41, turns to the city of Jerusalem and mourns over the city. The uh, this is in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 41. He drew near. Remember, he's approaching Jerusalem. Now he's drawing near to Jerusalem. And he saw the city, and he wept over it. Now, uh, weeping seems like a strong verb to me. Uh, it's actually like the most emphatic way you can say he's crying. He's lamenting. He's, he's bawling over the city of Jerusalem for their rejection of him, which is embodied by the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. The leaders of the people of God have rejected their king. And so now Jesus mourns over the city. And what does he say? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. That's the peace that Zechariah 9 is talking about, right? The peace that this king is supposed to bring. And he's saying, would that you would know the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. This is the people rejecting their king is going to produce the judgment of God on the people. And the judgment that's announced is found in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. 
because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus pronounces this destruction over Jerusalem. Luke records this destruction not in one chapter, but over the course of several chapters. He kind of sprinkles it throughout the later chapters of the gospel. We've actually already seen this uh, back in chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, where he makes a similar uh, lament over Jerusalem in the coming of the kingdom. And here he's pronouncing much the same. He's saying, in the future, Jerusalem will be destroyed for the, for, the, for the rejection of their king. The enemies will surround Jerusalem, they will hem them in on every side, and they will tear the city down so that not one stone is left upon another. Of course, Jesus being a prophet perfectly predicts what will come to pass 40 years later. That the Roman armies will siege Jerusalem, rip it to shreds, including the temple, And this is the judgment that God brings upon Jerusalem, not for some arbitrary reason, but because they have rejected their rightful king, the one who came to them as the king riding on the donkey. And so what we see then in these first two sections is this this kind of varied response. Jesus comes as a king, and you either worship him uh, rightly or you reject him cynically, but you can't have any kind of in-between between those two options. If Jesus comes to you and says, I'm a king and I deserve to reign and rule over the world, well, there's not really, you can either say, yes, I submit to your lordship or no, I reject that, but you can't take like a neutral ground between those two options, right? And, And that's exactly what the people and the Pharisees understand. The people respond worshipfully saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees say, we don't believe you're the king. We reject you. Uh, from making this claim. And what you come to realize is Jesus isn't this one-size-fits-all Messiah. He's a very particular kind of Messiah. He's not just whatever you want him to be to enhance your brand or your lifestyle or fit into the mold of whatever you've already got going on. He says he's a king, which, which means he gets to make claims that you have to obey. And if you don't obey those commands, well, then you're rejecting him as king. The, the point that I'm making is Jesus comes to us and clearly defines who he is. We don't have room to go back to the text of scripture and reinvent Jesus such that he matches whatever we wanted him to be to begin with. And, and all of us, all of us have a danger of doing that when we come to Jesus in the New Testament particularly when we highlight the parts of Jesus and his activity that agree with already what we think he should be doing. And, you know, he, he calls out the Pharisees for being hypocritical. Good on him. They're so hypocritical. And then he does something that we're like, oh, I'm not really sure what to do with that. Like he says, uh, love your enemies. And, and we, you know, drown that out and, and tune it down. And Jesus is coming to us as a king who, who has commands and we don't get to tune him out sometimes and listen to him at other, other times. Our job as disciples is to follow him and listen to his voice always. And so we don't get to reinvent him. And the Pharisees understand that. They're not trying to sugarcoat this and say, Jesus, we like your moral teaching, but you know, we don't like this other stuff. They're saying they, they reject him. They say, you've got to rebuke your disciples. And ultimately, uh, they, they want to kill him for all of his actions here. So I think it's disingenuous if we come to the text of Scripture cherry-picking Jesus for what we like about him and then kind of doing away with all the other stuff. And we all have a danger of doing that, don't we? 
But the other thing that's interesting about this text, uh, the words that the, uh, that the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is drawn out of Psalm chapter 118, where the people are expecting the king to come and to set things right for them. And so they're receiving Jesus as the king who's coming to set things right for them. So, and they're quoting from an Old Testament expectation of the king coming into the city to set it right. Particularly, the quote comes specifically out of verse 26 of Psalm 118. And the irony of it is that the Pharisees reject their king, the one who's supposed to be the king that they submit to and that they are the defenders of. And Psalm 118 anticipates that same, same exact reality. In fact, I'll just I'll read it for you, uh, the section of verses. Um, Jesus comes to the people, uh, and in verse 26, the, that's their direct quotation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you, if you look a little bit earlier in the text of Psalm 118, uh, verse 14, for instance, uh, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. This is the people responding to God bringing the king. And what they're responding to is the king having overthrown the enemies that have hemmed him in on every side. Verse 11, they surround me, surround me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surround me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So Jesus, when he quotes Psalm, 18, Psalm 118, is basically saying, I'm the king who's coming over the champion, over the enemies of God's people. And the enemies are the ones who oppose the king, right? So what Luke is telling us is that the Pharisees are the enemies of God. They're supposed to say the response, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But instead they say, this worship isn't fitting, this response isn't right. They are the people who are supposed to protect Israel, you get the picture, are the ones who are the enemies of Israel and of Israel's king. It's a kind of twisted irony that's going on. And so it's fitting that Jesus prophesies destruction over them. And we'll come back to that destruction uh, in a a couple of weeks. In chapter 21, it's even more drawn out. So I'll save you from, at this moment, from a historical revisiting of these texts. But then we see that he doesn't just enter the city, or he doesn't just receive worship and then proclaim judgment over the city, but he's going to do things while he's in the city. For instance, he's going to behave like a king would behave. In verse 45, he enters the temple and drives out people who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, he's, he's behaving like he has the authority to do that. But if you know of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees so far, you know that he is, he's not really on good terms with them. And so what he's doing is he's again antagonizing the Pharisees, but he's not just doing it because he is antagonizing them. He's doing it because he's the rightful king. He's behaving with authority because, because he is the king who can do this kind of thing. He can purify the worship of the temple. In fact, the good kings in Israel, the, the blimps on the radar that they are, what they do is they restore rightful worship. They, they throw out the false prophets. They throw out false worship. They restore right observance of God's word. But Jesus is behaving just like that, like a reforming king. He goes into the temple. He purges it of its false sacrifices. And he says, this is not how it's going to be. My house is a house of prayer. Right? The Lord's temple will be reserved for prayer but, and, not, and not a den of robbers. Well, there's a, a bunch of things going on, but first you have to understand why does he care that sacrifices are being sold in the temple? Well, what, what's happening here is the, the people 
particularly the chief priests and scribes who are responsible for like what goes on in the temple, they've set up a system in Israel where temple worship, particularly the sacrificial worship that happens in the temple, has been turned into a money-making business. So what happens is, you know, there's this one place where all Jews can gather to worship God by offering sacrifices. And once a year, the people of God, the Jewish people, are commanded to observe the Passover. And a number of days, that's what all the people are going to observe. So when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he approaches Jerusalem for this Passover feast. But so do all faithful Jews. So you have this city that, you know, has a a big population, but it's not every single Jew that lives in the Roman Empire that lives in this one city. But what happens is for the Passover, all the faithful Jews come swarming to the city because this is how you rightly observe the Passover, by offering these sacrifices, by celebrating with one another. And what has happened is the, the scribes and the, the chief priests have, have set up the temple knowing that when people are traveling from long distances, well, they can't, it's cumbersome to bring your sacrifice you know, with you on that journey. So no problem, we've got a sacrifice here for you, but we're going to sell it to you at a markup. You know, we know that you're not traveling with a sacrifice, but we know you need to offer a sacrifice. And so here they're, they're selling to you, well, they're, they can charge whatever they want because this is the sacrifice game that's in town. And it's a little bit like if you've ever been to Disneyland or to a baseball game or to any kind of venue where they tell you you can't bring food or drink or anything inside the venue. And then as soon as you get inside, they're selling all kinds of food and drink and all the rest. But they're selling it like twice the price of what it's worth outside. In the case of water, they're selling it for like five times what it's worth outside. And, and they know what they're doing. They know that you don't have options to go other places, so they can charge whatever they want. Right? Disney can sell their, their uh, hot pretzels for seven, eight, twelve dollars and people will pay that because, well, there's nowhere else to get pretzels inside this whole place, right? That's a little bit what like, the chief priests and scribes are doing. They're, they know people are coming without sacrifices, and so they're turning this into a very much inflated price gouging game where they can make as much money as they want on all the faithful Jewish people who simply want to come and observe the Passover. They've turned worship of God into uh, siphoning money out of the people of God. And so Jesus is saying this is not at all what worship should be like. So he comes and he purifies the temple of that. And he does, he does two things. He quotes two more texts in the Old Testament. I know this is a lot of Old Testament quotations. But he quotes them back to back. Uh, it's in verse 46. He says, it is written... My house shall be a house of prayer. That's quotation number one. And then quotation number two is, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the benefit uh, of these two quotations is they happen to be pretty close to each other in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at both of them. So first, find Isaiah 56. It's after Psalms, after Proverbs. It's the first of the prophetic books, and it's way towards the end. So Isaiah's got over 60 chapters. So Isaiah 56 is the text we're looking at. And the reason, by the way, I, I find it worthwhile to go through all these Old Testament quotations is because one of the most common accusations of the New Testament authors is that they just kind of quote whatever they want to out of the Old Testament without any regard for context and situation. And I just want to show you they're reading the Old Testament precisely as it was supposed to be read, as they're quoting from it. So Isaiah 56, and we'll be looking, the quotation is from verse 7, but I want to start in verse 6 of Isaiah 56. And this is the, right, the culmination of Isaiah. The servant of the Lord has already been introduced. So now we're looking to restoration. 
and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, that would be the Gentiles, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer. And notice, it goes on, for all people. For all the peoples. So what Isaiah is anticipating in this prophecy, in this announcement, is that the temple, the house of God, will be a house for all people to come and worship God, not just the Jews. Now this is a radical prophetic announcement. He's, he's saying in the time that the Gentiles come into the covenant of God, God's temple will be opened up so that all people can offer prayer in this temple. So when Jesus is not just is purifying the temple, uh, that's that first part, the house being a den of robbers, he also says it, it should be a, a house of prayer, right? And, he's, and he chooses that language particularly because in Isaiah, when that language is used, it's anticipating the Gentile inclusion in this worshiping people. But the text goes on. It gets even better than this. The Lord God, this is verse 8, the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who have already been gathered. So this is the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then, uh, if you skip uh, to verse 10, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. It's a condemnation of the leaders of Israel, the watchmen who were supposed to be watching the people, and basically saying, they're the kind of watchdogs that you buy, like most Americans when they buy dogs that are supposed to be used for guarding or hunting, and then you just feed them dog food all day, and you don't let them get exercise, and eventually, you do that for 10 years, the dog is not really a guard dog anymore, it's, it's more like a house pet, right? He's saying the, the, the people of Israel who are supposed to be the watchmen, the shepherds of God's people, they've simply given up their job description, and they're just getting fat off the people of Israel, just like what Jesus said in the temple is happening, right? So when he quotes and says, my house will be a house of prayer, you can bring this whole section to mind where he's not only saying the Gentiles are to be included, but also that the watchmen are being condemned for their failure to obey Jesus. But then uh, I said the other quotation is only a couple pages away. Uh, it's going to be about 40 pages away in most of your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 7. So it's, it's the very next book, but early on in the book of Jeremiah. And this one, I think, is an even better payout than the last one. And this is when he says, you have made it a den of robbers. So this comes out of Jeremiah 7, particularly verse 11 is where the quote is. Um, but for context, I'm going to be re begin reading in verse 8 of, of this text. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say that we are delivered? Only go on doing all of these abominations. Only to go on doing all these things. He's basically saying, you're worshiping me in the temple, but then your lifestyle, all the other days of your life, are completely opposed to that. I wonder who this is describing. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? 
Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So he's saying, I see right through all of the nonsense. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I have made my name to dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Now, only two weeks ago, we were in Psalm 78. The three weeks ago now, we were in Psalm 78. And when we were in Psalm 78, I read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the ark of God is taken away from the people of God because they presumed upon the Lord that he would rescue them when they had totally abandoned faithfulness to him. And the ark, before it was taken by the Philistines, dwelt in Shiloh. So when Jeremiah is saying to the, to the wicked people who are doing this false worship, go look at Shiloh and remember how I used to dwell there, he's saying, you doing all this false worship is going to provoke me to anger like I acted when I, when I destroyed you with the Philistines and removed the ark from Shiloh. And remember, Jesus quotes this right after he's just said in Luke's gospel, Jerusalem will be destroyed because of its false, pretentious worship, where it doesn't rightly acknowledge its king. You see how all the texts are kind of drawing together as Luke's writing this? The point then is, is simple with all these Old Testament quotations. Jesus is saying he is the messianic fulfillment of a whole lot of Old Testament anticipation. But not only that, that that fulfillment comes with rejoicing for some and judgment upon others. And there's no way to have it where you, it's only judgment or only rejoicing. Now, not many people today would argue for the only judgment part, but there are some Christians who I think unfortunately over, overemphasize because they feel included in the salvation of God. They just long for the judgment of God on other people. And the point of Jesus' response in Jerusalem is to say that he is sorrowfully judging the people who reject him. This is not that he's happy to destroy them or, or giddy that he gets to do this finally. You have, to, you have to see the heart of Jesus in this. He's, he's mourning over the fact that his people, who he wants to save, have rejected him. But also, there is a real judgment, you know, in that. You can't just do away with the judgment of God and the wrath of God because it's, it's clearly implied and prophesied all over the place with this coming king. So we can't, we can't unmake Jesus that way, but, but we also have to recognize that when he comes, he comes to be worshipped. He comes to be accepted and responded to and, and praised. And so I think, I think it's fitting for us to ask as we read this text together, how good of a job do we do of responding rightly to the king? He's come as a king to rule and to reign over us with his kingdom expanding across this whole world. And we can rightly ask ourselves the question, how good of a job do we do actually obeying him as though he is a king? Do we leave from our church and Christian context and then pretend like Jesus is no longer on the throne for, for days or even moments at a time? Do we, do we respond to him as a king at all in our lives? Have we ever responded to him as though he's the king? And that question that I'm asking is the exact same question that Luke puts into our minds in the closing two verses of this text. Verse 47 Jesus is teaching daily in the temple. He's done all this purging and, and proclaiming. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men, so this is all the outstanding people, the Sanhedrin, all of the Jewish leaders, they were seeking to destroy him. So they see all that he's doing, they rightly perceive it, and they say, we want to kill him for it. We don't want him to be king, we want him out. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people. That doesn't mean every single person in Jerusalem. It means an expanse of the laity. We're hanging on his words. 
And so you see the two different responses even in the text of Luke. So this, this is two ways to respond to the king, right? A, a very practical way you can think about this is, is how do you respond to the word of the king? If, if Jesus is a king that we are to worship and respond to and obey, a, a very pragmatic means by which we are to obey him is by hearing his voice as he speaks to us, most namely in, in his word. Do we look at scripture and treat it as something that we have knowledge over and we go to scripture and say, prove yourself to us and, uh, and I'm not listening unless it's beyond a shadow of a doubt what's going on? Or do we look at texts of scripture that challenge sin in our life and obedience in our life and we say, well, it, it definitely can't mean that and we can squirm out of all those kinds of things? Do we stand over the text of scripture critically seeking to evaluate it based on our own selves? Or uh, can we be described more as hanging on the very words of Scripture? Meaning Scripture is the authority that sits over top of us. It speaks to us. It can challenge us. It can call us to repentance. Now, the the dangerous follow-up question to ask is, let's say you believe that Scripture is in fact your authority and that you ought to hang on its very words. The question is, what practical shape does that take in your life? For instance, husbands... Do you regularly lead yourself and your family in worshiping the king so that your wives understand and so that you understand and proclaim that this word of God is over me as well? As I lead you and I try to shepherd you and guide you in this life, scripture is my authority over me. So let's read this thing together and when it says there's sin, you can call out the sin in my life and I can challenge you as well because this thing sits over both of us. Is that, a, is that a practical reality in your relationship? Or do you both say, yes, we obey the words of Scripture, but there's no practical way in which that takes place? Family worship is a great way that you can regularly proclaim to yourself, to your own heart, and to your wife, the Scripture is my authority as well. So that when you're reading this text together and, you know, you've just finished arguing about something foolish, and the text says, you know, have no quarrels among you, and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, Well, then your wife can go to you and say, hey, you're not in submission to the word, to the very text of scripture. And you can say, yes, and it is my authority. I hang on its words. And and you're very functionally proclaiming on a daily basis to yourself and to everyone around you and your family, this is my authority, not me. I'm not my own authority. If you're not married, how about in your own daily devotional life? Do you regularly seek God's word to listen to him and to hear him? Or do you presume that you already know him and you get him? And so there's nothing more to repent of, to confess, to conform to. When we are called to hang on the very words of God, that means we, we treat his words like the, the very lifeblood of our existence. Not as a pretext in which we can insert our opinions and, and thoughts that we had ahead of time. That's a very challenging and, and sobering thought, I think. I even think about it in my own life. It's, it's a challenging thing to always be in submission to the text of Scripture. But it's also a very safe thing to be under the king's rule and guidance for your life. For instance, if you consider, uh, I know this might come as a shock to you, uh, I make mistakes theologically about all kinds of things. I think I know how to live. I think I know what to do. I think I know what the text says. And, you know, sometime later I find out I was completely wrong about all of that. Good news, 
I, I wasn't the authority to begin with. So the text can call me to repentance. And it should rightly do that. But it's hard to live your life in, in submission to the word, to be humble enough to be corrected by it. And that's not just true theologically about what you believe, but also how you live practically on the ground. Do you love people as Christ calls you to love them? Do you serve as Christ calls you to serve? Do you walk in holiness as he calls you to walk in holiness? Do you worship him as he is to be rightly worshipped? So for Christians, this is a hard thing to walk out, but for those of us who, who don't follow the Lord or, or don't claim to follow the Lord, the, this is not just a question that Christians have to ask, do we hang on the words of Jesus? There's only one of two groups that are responding to him, those who reject him and those who accept him and worship him. And this, is, and this is, goes out to everyone who hears the message of Christ. Everyone who sees him do these things has to understand that this is who Jesus is to the world. This is who he is to you. He's not just a, a moral instructor for how you should best live your life for discipline and hard work. He's a king who says, I'm Lord of your life. I call you to submission to my word. I am your savior. savior. You can't save yourself. You're a sinner in need of forgiveness and to repent of all the sins in which you've committed. And I will provide the rest that you need. And he says that to, to the whole world, to everyone he calls to respond to him in that way. And so this text of Luke shows us then the two responses, the worship and the rejection, but it also makes us as readers ask the question, where do I lie? How does my life line up with this? Do I respond appropriately to the king as he presents himself? Or am I tempted to reinvent the king through the safety of 2,000 years and common sentiments about who this king was and, and whatnot so that he can remain at a safe distance where he can't challenge me or, call or, or question my life in any way and I only hear him when he agrees with what I already thought? I think it's a powerful thing to wrestle with and to walk away with from the text. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we confess that we are a people who are slow to hear your word and your voice. It is not that you are quiet in speaking to us. Lord, you have spoken profoundly through your word and through your life as you have lived it. And yet, God, you are the one who we struggle to listen to. I know that for my own heart, and I trust many other brothers and sisters in Christ can confess, that we struggle to listen to you as we should. We struggle to obey you as we should. Lord, we confess now in this moment all of our shortcomings, all of the ways in which we have failed to rightly hear your voice and obey your word even this week and this day. And yet we confess powerfully that it was never up to us in our obedience to begin with but it's because of the grace of your Son. And Lord, would that inspire us to walk more faithfully in your ways, more obediently in your word. Lord, give us the grace of your Spirit to conform us into the image of your Son. And Lord, we pray you would guard us from the hardening of heart and the rebellion that exists and the temptation that exists there to reject you, reject your word, reject your voice. Make us soft and supple, sensitive to your word, sensitive to your spirit, that we could obey you rightly at every turn. We pray this together in your name.
Amen.